Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Done by Law on 3CR. You're here with Sam and Greg, and J- Greg's just run into the door, and so I'll let him uh, <laughs> catch, catch, you, catch your breath. Um, but it, it it has been a big few weeks for climate action. Um, many of you will have been involved in the school climate strikes. Uh, and the Extinction Rebellion protests have seen disruptions uh, to cities around the world. And today in Canberra, the Australian Labor Party has joined calls for Australia to declare a climate emergency. This comes after more than 345,000 people signed uh, an e-petition asking for Parliament to make the declaration. And just last month, the newly formed Lawyers for Climate Action Uh, called upon the Law Council of Australia along with state and territory peak bodies to step up action uh, on climate justice. Catherine Browning is a co-founder of Lawyers for Climate Action and she joins us now. Good evening, Catherine. Oh, hi, Sam. Hi, Greg. How are you going? Going very well. So, Catherine, what prompted you to create Lawyers for Climate Action? Uh, Look, it's something that I think I've been thinking about for a little while um, and Myself and a couple of other colleagues in the profession had had a few conversations about it. We'd been watching a number of other professions um, step up and and urge their peak bodies and their colleagues to start taking action to address the climate crisis. Um, Of course, the medical profession um, was one of the first ones, um, and we're now even seeing engineers and scientists doing the same. And we just realised that the, the legal profession is really in a unique position to influence change in this area and there wasn't a lot that we could see that was being done on a collective level to bring our voices together and really call out um, for urgent climate action but urgent climate action that that was just for everyone as well Um, a big part of of what we're trying to do is ensure that the vulnerable communities and vulnerable people who are most affected by the climate crisis and who often have contributed to at least are at the, the front of this movement for change as well. So, um, yeah, we, we kind of... Um, uh, it was born out of a bit of frustration, I think, that, that our profession seemed to be lagging behind a number of others in, in doing their part on this issue. Catherine, you mentioned that lawyers are in a unique position uh, to have a say on this. Why why do you think that? Um, for, for a lawyer who's sitting in, a, in an office um, 8.30 to 5.30 or longer... Um, you know, we might have lights on and computer on. Or, uh, what what can a lawyer do above and beyond another profession um, that can have influence in this area? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think there's a really broad range of ways that lawyers can can try and contribute to solutions to the the climate crisis. Um, at the maybe at one end of the spectrum, there's those kind of changes that you mentioned, where um, you even look at things like energy efficiency in your own office. Um, but the, the spectrum is very broad in the sense that um, lawyers are, are kind of in a unique position um, because they have dealings with a range of different clients. Um, you have community legal sector lawyers that are often assisting vulnerable and disadvantaged people right through to corporate lawyers who might be representing some of the biggest companies 
um, some of the biggest polluters potentially in terms of carbon emissions in the world. So um, they do have a very tangible role to play in um, instigating and, and shaping change, um, particularly through businesses, but also down at that, that more localised level as well um, with community legal centre lawyers. So um, there's a really great... Um, speech that Justice Brian Preston gave um, at a conference a few years ago on what he called climate conscious lawyering and he really um, goes through the various ways that lawyers can um, potentially adopt a climate conscious approach in their daily legal practice and there is such a broad spectrum because of the, the different ways that climate change manifests as legal issues but also as financial and reputational issues for our clients. Um, and that's sort of part of the inspiration that where we drew some of these ideas from as well. And so um, Labor today um, announced that they uh, were going to push for um, a climate emergency. Um, this is something that will be introduced to the House of Representatives. Um, they're unlikely to have the numbers for it unless for some reason we see coalition members cross the floor. Um, what do you think, um, does this help, what, what do you think this does to help emissions reductions now that Labor have come out and said this? Yeah, look, I think it's a really positive first step, um, but we do also need to remember that um, these sorts of declarations can sometimes be meaningless unless they are backed up by urgent action. Um, we need to actually see the proof in the pudding here. So um, while this, this declaration, if it goes through... Um, is a really important step in acknowledging both the scale and the urgency of the climate crisis. Unless it's backed up by um, meaningful policy that will assist us in meeting the, the Paris Agreement aims of limiting warming to, to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels, um, it's really difficult to see how this um, is something that, that is going to lead to tangible change without those, those policies to back it up. I mean, we have a, a Labor Party federally um, that, if you look at their history, um, they've voted in support of opening the Carmichael mine, um, a number of the, the Labor members did. And, and you kind of, it makes you wonder uh, what sort of meaningful policy they are going to introduce to back this up, uh, given that that's the, their history. Um, we can't, on the one hand, be declaring a climate emergency without those policies um, to help us reach those targets, um, whilst also continuing to open new coal mines. So those two positions are very, very contradictory of one another. And I just, I'd be interested to see whether or not this declaration is going to be reflected in policy or just words. And so you're, you're up in Queensland, you make, mentioned Carmichael Mine, um, you would have seen Labor, the Labor MP Joel Fitzgibbon um, come out and say that the Labor Party should adopt um, some of the coalition's targets. Um, there's been some worries around declaring an emergency that could be counterproductive, a bit like um, Tony Abbott's budget emergency from 2014 or perhaps the Stoppadani um, convoy that came up. Um, do you think that this could further isolate um, the community uh, when, when, if you do uh, declare an emergency, that there is actually a, a backlash the other way? Yeah, look, um, that's certainly um, an issue that I think you need to be mindful when you are using language like emergency. Um, certainly, um, when we sort of embarked on this journey, it was only a few weeks before the 20 September school strike, school strike for climate. Um, and 
we did learn a lot in those few weeks leading up to the, the, the climate strikes. Um, declarations of emergency, as you said, can sometimes be understood as um, demands for the suspension of the rule of law, um, particularly when you're referring to things like the budget emergency, um, and they can potentially have the, the effect of stifling um, meaningful change in, in the direction that you're hoping to go in. Um, certainly, I think... Um, we also need to be mindful when we're talking about emergency powers that they can sometimes um, fall most heavily on communities that um, are marginalised. And certainly that was the case, I think, with some of the emergency powers that have been invoked in um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities historically in the Northern Territory in particular. So, um, it, look, it's something that you do need to be mindful of. Um, I think something that we've come to grips with is that part of this call... Um, for emergency action is really a recognition of the scale and the urgency of the problem. And the, the action that is needed to back it up um, really does need to ensure um, that is, it is just and that we're doing it in a, in a way that's just and doesn't um, isolate people or um, stifle change. So, yeah, certainly that's something that, that I recognise and, and as well as the Climate Action recognises um, we need to be mindful of and we are calling for an emergency I was just, I mean, I'm interested, you, you, you speak about um, suspending um, laws so um, you can respond to an emergency. Um, yeah. And I just wonder whether, um, I mean, it, to me, it, on its face, it kind of sounds like a good idea because I mean, <laughs> climate change is, uh, I think, the most pressing issue of our time. And we've got politicians yeah. who are just faffing about um, in the luxury, probably of an air-conditioned parliament building, um, not really yeah. making any decisions. Um, I mean, it sounds attractive, the idea of just um, declaring an emergency, getting in there, getting things done. Um, I mean, and I, and I would imagine that a lot of people feel the same way. So I just I was interested in sort of unpacking that because to me it doesn't sound like a totally bad idea. Yeah, look, I mean, um, I think our views on that as lawyers for climate action is, is that um, we are lawyers at the end of the day. Um, our duty is to uphold the law um, and we have duties to the courts, as you're well aware. Mm. Um, so I think in, in a lot of ways... Um, our certainly our call for a climate emergency and, and to ask our legal peak bodies to recognise the climate crisis as an emergency um, was never really intended to to be any kind of call for a suspension of the rule of the law. I think um, I think what more we are asking for is a recognition that this is a very urgent and existential problem. Um, and there should be ways as lawyers that we can contribute um, within the bounds of our professional responsibilities. Uh, I take your point. Um, certainly, you know, as you're saying, it does seem like a very attractive um, proposition for some people, um, and, and, and that some people certainly hold that view that that is what is needed. Um, there's been obviously some recent discussions around this with some of the protest action that's been occurring as well. Mm. Um, and I'm not sure if that's something that um, you're wanting to discuss as well on the program. Well, but... I was just about to ask you that because that was kind of yeah. like my follow-on question. Um, because yeah. on one hand, we're talking about this emergency um, and then yeah. we have all of these um, protests um, with uh, the school kids um, doing their own yeah. thing. And then we've obviously got the extinction, extinction, 
blah, <laughs> extinction rebellion protests that are yeah. um, currently taking uh, place um, both here and around the world. Um, are are yeah. they calling for an emergency or are they calling for some other kind of change? Yeah, look, I think um, my understanding of, of those movements is that they are calling um, for urgent action um, and a variety of other demands as well. Um, obviously, if you are taking to the streets and undertaking peaceful protest, protests in the way that they are, um, you are, you've reached that point, I think, in, in this issue where um, no-one in power is listening, really. Um, you, a lot of... Um, a lot of the, the these movements, I think, are built off the back of, of really passionate advocates who've been doing this work for a long time. And um, lobbying government hasn't worked. Um, lobbying letters hasn't worked. And they're at that stage where um, this kind of non, non-violent direct action is really the next step in, in trying to make people stand up and listen. And certainly it does have a, a really strong history in Australia and in very, many other countries as well in creating social change. Um, I'm not sure if um, Sam and Greg, whether you're familiar with, I think it's Erica Chenoweth's uh, recent research on um, nonviolent direct action. Um, she has spent a lot of time as part of her uh, PhD, I believe, uh, analysing a number of nonviolent direct um, action movements across the world. And one of the most interesting findings um, she's made is that once um, 3.5% of the population participate in nonviolent direct action, um, it really never fails to create social change. And we see that with lots of um, different movements around Australia and, and around the world as well. It's not just the climate crisis. Um, so, look, I think it's a really important um, way of, of, of making your voice heard. And it is disappointing in a lot of ways to see um, governments cracking down on, on that and perhaps trying to limit people exercising their right to nonviolent direct action. You're listening to Done By Law on 3CR with Sam and Greg. We're speaking to Catherine Browning, co-founder of Lawyers for Climate Action. Catherine, I just wanted to touch, uh, go back to the demands that you have, and we're talking a lot about um, the declaration of a, of a climate uh, emergency, steps that um, lawyers and law firms can be taking in every in their, in their everyday practice. But are there specific policies that you see that are necessary for um, governments or individuals to take that will get us to that target of limiting warming to one, one and a half degree? Yeah, look, um, certainly there are a number of um, policies and I think um, some of these these policies are certainly outlined by the movements that we're seeing at the moment, like um, School Strike for Climate and Extinction Rebellion. Um, I think... Um, Number one, we must be able to transition to 100% renewable energy generation and we must be able to do that as soon as possible, um, I think by 2030. Um, we must also be looking at transitions and job creation for fossil fuel-based industries as well. Um, we need to ensure that, that we are transitioning those communities um, in, in a, as just a way as possible. Um, and I think, uh, you know, we always need to be mindful, particularly as lawyers, I think we do have a um, really strong tradition in our profession of undertaking um, legal work, pro bono legal work for the most vulnerable members of our society um, and contributing back to society in that way. Um, I would argue that the 
uh, responsibility of lawyers to be aware of and act on climate change issues in their daily legal practice is really an extension of that existing responsibility um, to ensure and enhance access to justice for people that might not otherwise have legal help. And to do that, I think we as lawyers also need to um, perhaps recognise that a lot of the time we are in a very, very privileged position and we do have a responsibility to make sure that um, vulnerable communities most affected by climate change are at the forefront of this movement for change and elevate their voices wherever possible. So it, going into those vulnerable communities, um, you might have a better idea um, of some of those remote communities in um, in central Queensland than we do, although I acknowledge you're probably considered a southerner by some uh, definitions. Um, yes, but... I'd fair say we most certainly are. I'm, I'm based in Brisbane, so yeah, <laughs> I think talk to anyone in North Queensland and they tell you I was a southerner. <laughs> but in those North Queensland communities, um, the the issue of, of jobs and, and making sure that uh, communities are, are feasible economically ongoing. Um, how do you balance, how, how do you think that we should balance that um, when we're working for, for climate action that we know we need? Yeah, I think it's a really tricky question. Um, we need to start transitioning those communities as soon as possible. Um, look, my understanding is that the the growth that we're seeing in, in renewable energy in particular in those industries across Australia um, presents a real opportunity um, to assist with that transition. Um, and more and more we are seeing the, the amount of renewable job opportunities increasing each year um, right across Australia and, and probably across other parts of the world as well. Um, so, uh, look, it's a tricky issue um, and... Part of that is ensuring that um, those communities are supported economically um, during that transition process as well. Um, I'm not going to pretend to have all the answers on this. <laughs> mm. um, I think it's, it's something that um, any climate policy that um, is introduced either federally or, or by state government needs to consider carefully um, and ensure that we're, we're looking after not only um, jobs and, and the economy in those areas, but... Um, the, the communities that surround them as well. I was just I was interested in that aspect because, um, and I wanted to get your opinion. At the last election, um, the labor the Labor Party in particular was running. A, a, I guess I really maybe they didn't really know what the, what their policy was exactly, but in one sense they mm. were they were fighting for um, this transition to um, more renewable energy. But at the same time, they were saying, let's keep all of our coal mines open. Do you feel that, mm -hmm. um, I guess it's maybe two questions here. One, the message got lost. But two, do you think that the message in supporting those um, communities which rely on those industries, which um, that were being flagged to be, uh, as being transitioned away from, um, were being left behind in the messaging? Yeah, I, I, I'm sure that those communities probably felt that a little bit. Um, and I, I'm certainly, as I said, you know, I'm, I'm a Brisbane-based lawyer, so I'm certainly not going to pretend to speak on their behalf. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I do think um, it is quite a contradictory message in a lot of ways to, on the one hand, be arguing about um, the need to transition to renewable energy whilst at the same time continuing to open coal mines. I think... Um, it's sort of a difficult message to, to sell both ways mm. and, and perhaps some of that sentiment um, has, has come from that, um, of feeling a little bit left behind. 
Um, I think, you know, the, the, these issues are really complex and, and any government that steps up to do this work, it's hard work. It's that they're global issues um, that we need to address um, on a massive scale and um, it's going to be hard work for any government that, that tries to implement these policies. But um, I think the point that we have tried to make as lawyers for climate action is that... Um, you know, our, our future generations are going to thank you if you do this work. And it's not going to be easy. Um, it's definitely not going to be something that, that will, will come easily, but it's work that needs to be done um, because our future does depend on it. Catherine, Greg was talking uh, uh, um, before about some of the protests that being, have been going on. I understand the Queensland government are um, looking at some laws to crack down at, on that at the moment. Are you able to explain what, what they would do? Yeah, look, I can provide a brief explanation of that. Um, I invite any listeners who are more interested in this issue to um, read Lawyers for Climate Action submission on this as well, which goes into quite a bit of detail on um, some of the views we've put forward on this. Um, in a nutshell, um, the laws themselves uh, purport to regulate um, dangerous attachment devices, um, which are what is referred to... Um, amongst the, the non-violent um, direct action movement as um, things like dragon pens, so lock-on devices which are intended to, in a lot of cases, um, uh, I guess, delay um, removal um, of protesters from certain areas. I think um, I was reading um, that some of the Extinction Rebellion protesters were locking on to the actual road. Was that correct in Brisbane, that they were um, supergluing themselves to the road? Yeah, I'm not sure the definition and and um, I'd refer listeners to our submission on this to just be sure about this but I'm not sure that the definition includes people just gluing themselves um, I think it is is a bit more than that so these lock-on devices are, are devices that are kind of cylinders that, that people can um, use to connect either um, to other people or to to objects um, the, the issue that we've raised with the law is that it's unnecessary um, so if um if there is someone who uh, locks on using one of these devices with the intent to harm themselves or another person, there are already existing laws um, in place that regulate that. And that's obviously a very serious issue if someone is um, bringing a dangerous device along with the intent to harm someone. Um, our understanding certainly of um, the, the movements that have, have been protesting recently is that they are very much um, non-violent direct action groups and um, I, you read all of their um, you only have to look at the school strike for climate or extinction rebellion website to know that um, they certainly um, are, are very much non-violent movements and that there did seem to be little evidence to support the introduction of these laws in the sense that um, some of the claims that were being made about the devices being laced or booby trapped um, have been unsubstantiated so on the one hand, I think our argument is these laws are unnecessary. Um, existing laws already cover the situation where someone intends to harm someone. Um, and there's certainly no evidence that that's what's been happening anyway. Mm. Um, it does seem to be a, quite a rushed attempt, I think, to introduce these laws. Um, and, yeah, it, it it's not so much... Um, I think our, our argument is it's a distraction, a distraction from the actual issue, which is to introduce meaningful policies that will combat climate change. Um, why are we rushing these laws through to prevent people 
um, from the right to peaceful, peaceful assembly when um, the government could be spending its time uh, taking meaningful action on climate change. That's really our argument in relation to those laws. There will be a lot of lawyers listening to this who are interested in, in joining the cause. Um, how, how can people find you? How can people help out and contribute to Lawyers for Climate Action? Yeah, great question. Thank you so much. Um, there's lots of ways. Um, as I said, we, we are a very um, new uh, network of lawyers that was only formed a couple of weeks before the, the school strike for climate on the 20th of September. Um, so a lot of what, what we are aiming to do is to really mobilise the legal profession to take action on climate in whatever way they feel is possible. Um, very soon we hope to be putting out some general guidelines and, and um, aims of, of us as a network um, and we will put those out on our social media channels so that people can read and understand those. Um, but really I think what we are trying to do right across Australia is um, get lawyers thinking about what their um, personal, ethical and professional response to the climate crisis should be. So whether that's um, talking to your employers, your law firms, your community legal centre employers um, and seeking their support to participate in, in future climate strikes, um, whether that's trying to mobilise uh, more pro bono legal help to assist those communities who are going to be most affected, um, our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, those that are affected by natural disasters and drought and those transitioning away from fossil fuel-based industries. Um, it could be... Um, uh, assisting uh, with independent legal observer projects. Um, I'm not sure if you guys have, have seen many of those projects at the protests down in Melbourne, but certainly in Brisbane we've seen those where um, groups like Action Ready uh, is doing a fantastic job at, at um, coordinating some of those independent legal observers to really just act as an independent body uh, to observe some of the interactions between police and the public. And that can be a really tangible, practical thing that, that lawyers and even law students can do to assist. And, and, um, and then, of course... Sorry, sorry I was going to say, ahead. have you found that to be effective in Queensland um, from what you've heard or seen? Yeah, I think it has been a really um, positive uh, thing at some of the, the protests we've seen up here. Um, it actually was born out of um, a, a project that one of the community legal centres uh, was, was spearheading up here, Caxton Legal Centre, during the G20 um, summit that happened a few years ago here. And it was a really successful um, project then. And I think it's um, something that, that has been continued um, for some of these protests as well. Um, I think it's just... Um, it, it can sometimes be a bit of a reassuring influence to have someone there identified in their, their high vis um, as an independent observer. Um, and to monitor those interactions, it can sometimes have a calming effect, um, I think. Well, yeah, and, I think and so do you think if we get 3.5% of lawyers on board, um, <laughs> according to Eric, Erica Chenowich, does that, uh, does that mean we achieve our goals then? Yeah, look, um, maybe. Yeah, maybe it applies to, um, to professions as well as to, to non-violent direct action. Yeah, I, I would love to see 3.5% of lawyers across, across Australia engaging in a meaningful way on this. It would be fantastic. Well, I think we might yeah. do that and we'll put the link up on our mm -hmm. uh, social media channels on Facebook and Twitter and, um, and encourage people to go uh, and, and like the page on Facebook as well uh, for Lawyers for Climate Action. Thank you. And yes, you, you that's mentioned... Wonderful. 
you mentioned the submissions um, that you've uh, uh, you've put together. Um, where where can our listeners go to read those submissions if they were interested? Yeah, uh, those submissions are actually published on the Queensland Parliamentary website. Um, so that, that's probably the best place to view them at the moment. Um, we have also shared them on our social media channels as well, um, on our Facebook page, and I do believe they're on our um, Twitter as well. So if someone was to Facebook uh, Lawyers for Climate Justice, they'll find you? They will, yes. Catherine. Oh, sorry, we are actually still, I should point out, we are actually still lawyers for climate action at this stage. Climate action, um, sorry. Yeah, we are um, considering actually um, changing our name to lawyers for climate justice. So that's something that, that is um, open to debate at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Always a debate of what some, what a group like yours should be called. I'm sure you'll yeah, settle on the right especially when it's a group of lawyers. Group of lawyers, <laughs> <laughs> say. <laughs> Catherine Browning, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Thanks, guys. It was lovely to chat to you both. Thanks for having me on. That's Catherine Browning. She's the co-founder of Lawyers for Climate Action, possibly Lawyers for Climate Justice. We'll uh, be interested to see what happens there. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.